0: I want us to start out this morning with a little exercise. And I'm going to test your brand loyalty. You guys know what brand loyalty is? Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you guys a a series of slides here uh, of two different uh, competing brands. What I want you to do for me is to indicate which of those brands you think is better by saying so. And if you feel particularly strong about your preference for one of those rather than the other, I want you to say it loudly. I mean, keep in mind this is Christmas time, people are shopping. People could be influenced by you shouting something out, right? So if you feel strongly, let people know. So we'll do the first one together, just to so get the idea of it. So I'm going to show you two brands here, side by side, and I'll say something like Coke or Pepsi? And you say? Pepsi! Ooh, more Pepsis this round. I should be taking statistics, right? Okay, now that was the easy one, right? You should have decided that back in the 80s if you were around then. Uh, but uh, let's look at the next one. This one's a little bit more controversial. Mac or PC? Yeah. Whoa, whoa. Interesting. Okay, OK? GM or Ford? Yeah. This is a little bit different from First Service. Okay. We had a strong Ford showing in the First service, so now, next one. Uggs are extra tough. Patriots or any other announce oh, team? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Got some fans in the house here. Okay, this shows where you are in Fairbanks here. Fred's East or Fred's West? Yes. West for life, baby. Okay, last one. This is for Pastor Eric. Cats or dogs? The people have spoken. (laughs) Okay. Well, there you go. There's your brand loyalty. Uh, Thanks for doing that. Now, some of those you might not have cared too much about. Others you might have cared about a whole lot. And uh, let me ask you this. When you consider your life, where is your strongest loyalty? What would make your heart get up and shout the loudest? And I don't just mean loyalty to a product that you can go get at Costco. uh, But I want to know what it is that stirs you up that what you are so devoted to that it makes you want to shout it out and let the world know about it. Is it your country? USA, USA. <laughs> or is the Oregon Ducks? Go Ducks. I got a lot of booze for that one last time too. Is it your family or maybe a particular relationship or is it something else? Now, there's one area in all of our lives that calls out to us for our loyalty and our heart's devotion. It's our Christian faith. Specifically, most of us already realize that our top loyalty ought to be to God. And sometimes we do really well with this. Uh, We feel very committed to God and our faith, and it seems that the Christian walk is easy. And yet, if we're honest, I think that at other times, uh, we can feel a little bit flat in our faith, or almost like we're going through the motions or living our Christian lives on autopilot, almost like we're in a spiritual desert of sorts. And even though we know our loyalty or devotion Heart's devotion ought to be fully God's, we might occasionally struggle with other things calling out to our hearts more loudly. And the long and short of it is that sometimes it's really hard to be fully devoted to God. But that's what I want us to talk about today. I want us to specifically look at what can help us to feel more devoted to God if we feel like we're walking through a dry season in our faith. Or to put it another way, How can we get out of the spiritual desert or deserts that we might find ourselves in from time to time? Now, we are going to look at Scripture today, and we're going to see a group of people who were in the desert, quite literally, not just a spiritual desert, and we're going to see what we can learn from them. If you've been with us for the past few months, you know we've been working our way through the book of Numbers. This is in the Old Testament. It's a time of desert wanderings of God's people, the 40 years in the desert, and it has not been an easy time for God's people. Started out great, Uh, God delivers his people from Egypt. He makes a covenant with them at Sinai and uh, brings them up to the edge of the promised land only to find out that most of the people don't believe or trust in him enough to enter in. And so this 40 years in the desert begins and the people complain a lot And they give their leaders a hard time over and over and over again. But God, through it all, he consistently provides for them. Food, water, keeps his promises. And by the time of the opening of our passage today, years have passed. They've been through their wanderings in the desert. And they're near the border of the promised land a second time, this time to go in. And you think that after 40 years of learning to, to depend daily on God for food and water, that these people would have hearts fully devoted to God. But as we're going to see, it's not actually the case. But what God does give us near the book of the end of Numbers is two stories that we're going to compare. One story is about a pagan sorcerer named Balaam, and the other is about an Israelite named Phinehas. And what God does in this juxtaposition of these two people and this contrast of their two stories is to show us what we can do to help be more devoted to God when we're walking through a dry season in our faith. Now, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to finish the book of Numbers today, believe it or not. So we're not going to read the remaining 15 chapters verse for verse, so relax. But we are, amen, right? But we are going to consider the stories of these two different men and what they communicate to us so we can get stirred up in our faith and loyalty for God so that we too can get out of a spiritual desert. So if you get your Bibles there in front of you, uh, we're going to be in the book of Numbers, starting in chapter 22. Numbers 22. And let's just start with one verse here. Verse 1. Numbers 22:1 1 says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Okay, let's just stop there. So this is the scene, right? This is the setup. This vast swarm of Israelites, they've made it through the desert after nearly 40 years. uh, In some recent uh, chapters that we haven't read through, they got two huge military victories that God just handed to them. And now they are near the finish line, near the end of their time in the desert and about to enter the promised land. Jericho's just over there. You can almost taste it, right? Things are going great. But... Uh, little do those Israelites know that there's an evil plot afoot just over there. So you move the camera from this camp and see the beady little eyes of an evil king peering down on them. And that's what we're going to read in verse two. This evil plot begins. It says, verse two, Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde, they're going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Okay, so stop there for a second. So this is the, evil, the start of the evil plot going on here. Things are going great for Israel, but the people who live nearby aren't too happy about that. So this, this guy named Balak, he's the king of Moab, he starts freaking out. He, he says, hey, they just beat up the Amorites. And the Amorites beat up me last year, so they must be tougher than them, right? And all these people are so worried that the Israelites, they're going to take over and that they feel totally helpless. And they know that they can't take him on militarily, right? So Balak, smart guy that he is, realizing that he's in over his head, does what people who are in over their heads have been doing for millennia. He hires a consultant, right? So this is, starts in verse 4. Verse 4. So Balak, this is the evil king, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pathor near the Euphrates River in his native land. Balak said, the people's come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and derive them out of the land. For I know that whoever bless you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed." Okay, so this is, this is Balak's great plan here. He says, I can't take these people on with an army, but maybe I can hire a, like, a witch doctor to do some kind of bad juju on them and mess them up, right? <laughs> and what we need to understand here is that Balaam is the top dude in the business. He's like the top of witch doctors here, right? He's specifically sought out by Balak. He's got this reputation and so Balak's basically calling in the heavy to deal with these Israelites. And uh, if we go over on time, I'm going to blame my small group because they said I had to show this to you. But we actually have some archaeological evidence for the existence of Balaam, son of Baor, as this false prophet. These are some, uh, they were plasters on a wall hanging in uh, Jordan. And we actually have uh, portions of another prophecy outside of scripture uh, that attests to Balaam, uh, son of Beor. So uh, he was a big enough name. This is what we need to carry from this. He was a big enough name uh, that his other writings have survived to us. And I put a link in your bulletin if you're interested in looking at that later. Uh, but that's the basic idea is here comes the heavy to deal with these Israelites. But things didn't go according to plan. Verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report to you, back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him, and God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. The people's come out of Egypt that covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to fight them and drive them away. But God said to Balaam, don't go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they're blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, go back to your own country for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, sorry, Balaam refused to come with us. Okay, so this this is the summary here. Balak sends his henchmen to get the services of this sorcerer guy, and Balaam, shockingly, actually hears from God. And Yahweh tells him, don't go with them because these people are blessed. Now, what I'm about to tell you is key for understanding the story of Balaam. In this scene and a few scenes following, he is going to hear some actual prophetic words from the true God. God's going to talk to him and communicate through him. But don't get tripped up on that. The story of Balaam is not essentially about a true spokesman for God who goes bad. And it's not even about an evil witch doctor who tries to be good. What we need to understand about Balaam is this is someone totally outside of Israel. He's not Jewish. He's a pagan. He does not worship Yahweh. But the sovereign God of the universe, Yahweh, is going to choose to speak to him and through him to make an emphatic point to his people, the Israelites. But you got to wait for it, so just hang on with me for a bit here. I'll come back to that. And at this point, as much as we love the story, we go, but uh, Adam, uh, what does this story, of this guy have to do with helping me get stirred up in my devotion for God? I don't get it. Okay, good question. I'm not going to spill the beans just yet, but what I'm going to do is give you a clue. Throughout this whole story, we need to hear what's going on in this enemy camp as though we were one of those Israelites uh, who was there. And this is what those Israelites would have understood from the story so far. Evil people are against us. Evil powers are against us. But fortunately, the God of the universe intends to do us good. What a relief. Okay? So let's continue on here. Evil's persistent. Balak doesn't give up. And he tries to hire this witch doctor again. He probably figures, oh, maybe he wants more money, right? So verse 15, then Balak sent other officials, more numerous, more distinguished than the first. They came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor says, Do not let anything keep you from coming to me, because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in this palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. So scram! Get out of here and don't come back, right? No. Read verse 19. Uh, Now spend the night here so I can find out what else the Lord will tell me. Right. So Balaam had already got his answer from God the first time they came. He says, don't go with them. These people are blessed. You don't curse them. But we see that there's something going on in Balaam's heart. A lot of money's on the table, and so he's going to go back to God to see if he can maybe work this situation a little bit to his advantage. Verse 20. That night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. Balaam got up in the morning, settled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. So, It seems that God's going to permit Balaam to go. But, verse 22, God was angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Okay, so on one hand, God gives his permission. But on the other hand, God's getting angry with him for going. So what's going on here? Okay, the closest thing that I can kind of relate this to is, uh, I'll give you an instance here, but I have to define my terms. Does everyone know what Comic-Con is? It's a comic book convention, and some of us would, might want to go. I'm just saying. So let's say that an individual went to his spouse and said, hey, honey, guys want to go to Comic-Con down in San Diego next week. Uh, what do you think? Can I go? And your wife turns and says, well, you know, our son's big end-of-the-season tournaments next Friday, and then our daughter has the all-day dance recital and practice on Saturday, and you know what? We're right at the edge of our budget, and that's going to just put us over the top. I don't think this is a good time to go to Comic-Con. And you go, okay. And you text your friends and you say, sorry, guys, can't go this time. And then two days later you go, hey, honey, the guys want to go to Comic-Con San Diego next week. What do you think if I go? And your wife kind of goes, you want to go to Comic-Con? Okay, go to (laughs) Comic-Con. And you go, okay, great. And you text your friends and (laughs) I can go, guys. Totally clueless as to how... uh, you know, your spouse might be feeling, and this is totally not real, by the way. It's totally fictional. <laughs> so it never happen. Just saying here. So Balaam thinks he has this loophole, but he's totally clueless to how God feels about this path that he's on. And he doesn't see this fearsome angel standing in the road opposing him. But the, the donkey does here. Back half of verse 22. So Balaam's going to Balak. He said, Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam's thinking, what's up with this? Because he doesn't see the angel, right? He's thinking, why on earth would my donkey do that? So he beats it to get it back on the road, and he keeps on going on. Verse 24. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides, When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Ouch. Okay, that time it hurt a little bit. Balaam felt it in his foot, right? Got his attention. Balaam's probably thinking, man, I don't know what I fed that donkey, but it's time to get rid of this donkey. It's a case of progressive disobedience. But he keeps on going on the same path here. But the road gets narrower. Verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. So he's just like wailing on this donkey. It's kind of a terrible image when you think about it here. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? And Balaam answers. He doesn't say, Why are you talking to me? He says, you made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you been your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I did not realize you were standing on the road to oppose me. Now, if you're displeased, I'll go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak them only what I tell you. Okay, let's come up for air here and talk about this. This is probably the most famous part of the story, the talking donkey, but I want to tell you now, this is not the whole story. This is part of a bigger whole that we're going to look at here. And again, we have to put on our Israelite ears and hear from this story what the first audience did. The stupid, stubborn donkey was more spiritually discerning then the infamous Balaam, son of Baor. Now, the Israelites are probably snickering at this point, this bumbling villain, but we're going to come back to his foolish or his reckless path in a bit. Just keep in, fa- in mind that his trajectory is one that is against God. So I'm going to fast forward the story a little bit, a few verses. Balaam finally finishes his donkey ride. He meets up with Balak. Balak is right on the edge of his country, eager to get him started. Oh, you're here. Okay, great. Let's go up there now. Let's Why wait? Let's go, let's go, let's go. And he brings Balaam up to a point where he can peer down, see all the Israelites, and he says, okay, let's get to it. They sacrifice a bunch of animals, and Balaam starts his pagan mumbo-jumbo divination to see if he can work up a curse against Israel. And amazingly again, Yahweh speaks to this pagan prophet again. Jump down to chapter 23. We're going to be in verse 7. And this is basically the word that God gives to Balaam. Verse 7, it says, Then Balaam spoke this message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or even number a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Okay, do you get it? The gist of the so-called curse. He basically says, hey, Balak, you brought me from way far away to curse these people, but I can't because of Yahweh. They are special. They stand apart. Gee. I wish I could be just like them. Okay, this is not what Balak wants to hear. And if we're hearing this with our Israelite ears, we should be laughing and cheering a bit. This is a good thing for Israel. And again, you're kind of thinking in the beginning, yeah, but Adam, hey, wait a second. What does this have to do with breaking me out of my spiritual funk? Hold on, it's coming. Just wait for it here. But at this point, we can at least say that Balaam, what Balaam gave, wasn't much of a curse. Balak's not happy. Verse 11, he says, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. He answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? But Balak is not about to give up. And surprisingly, neither is Balaam, despite the consistent signals he's received, not to go against God or his plans. So Balak and Balaam, they repeat this whole process again. They go to a different spot. They sacrifice more animals to work up this dark magic against Israel. And surprise, Yahweh brings another message through Balaam to Balak. Jump down to verse 18. This is what Yahweh says to Balaam the second time. It says, then he spoke his message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God's not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill I've received a command to bless. He's blessed, and I can't change it. No misfortune seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God's with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There's no divination against Jacob. No evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and Israel, See what God has done. The people arise like a lioness they rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest till it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. Yikes! This is an even bigger blessing than the last one. Balaam's probably like plugging his ears, okay? Balaam's basically saying to him, read my lips. I cannot curse them. Right? Uh, They are strong because of God. Ain't no mumbo-jumbo black magic going to work against them. And they're about to take names and kick some tushy. So you better get out of the way. And the Israelites hearing this story are loving this. And again you ask, but what does this story have to, have to do with me recapturing my heart's devotion towards God? We're almost there. About to reach the last stop, but let's continue. Evil, like I said, is persistent. As is Balak, as is Balaam, who ought to know better. But hey, Third time's a charm, right? Maybe it'll work this time. So they go to a different place, make more sacrifices, look for a curse, and whammo! Another blessing comes. Jump down to chapter 24, verse 5. This is the word from God through Balaam. He says, How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse them? May, they, may those who bless you be blessed. And he probably turns to Balak at this point. And those who curse you be cursed. Hmm. Okay, finally King Balak, he's fed up. And he goes, you know what, Balaam? You had one job. One job and you blew it. Epic fail. Get out of here. I'm not going to give you any money. But at this point, Balaam can't hold back. He has one more prophecy that he feels compelled to give. There's no animal sacrifice, no black magic mumbo jumbo. And this is what he says in chapter 24, verse 14. He says to King Balak, he says, Now I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you about what this people will do to your people in days to come. Then he spoke this message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab. The skulls of all the people of Sheth Edom will be conquered. Seir, enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. And don't miss it. This is the climax that this entire passage has been building to. This is a prophecy about Messiah. And this isn't the one that we typically read during Christmas time, but I'll read it here in verse 17 again. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he's going to destroy God's enemies. And again, putting on our Israelite ears, hearing this as that first audience would have heard it, I think that this last prophecy of Balaam hits them in quite a different way. As Balaam's story has been unfolding, as he starts to give these prophecies, that the Jews who first heard this, would start, they'd start out maybe laughing, maybe cheering, going, yeah, uh-huh, that's right, something like that. But this last prophecy breaks the mold. Now things are getting serious. All along the way, the message has been consistent. I am for these people, Balaam. I am for these people, Balaam. Hello, Balaam, I am for these people. But with this last prophecy, with his mention of this messianic king coming to bring judgment on Israel's enemies, God's upping the ante. God's saying, I'm for these people, Balaam, and I'm so committed to them that I will fulfill all of my plans for them. I'm going to bring my king, and he will reign. And this isn't just about some wishy-washy feeling that's going to come or go with me. This isn't about a blessing or a curse in this tiny little cross-section of time. I'm in it with these people for the long haul. They are mine, and I am for them. But Adam, you ask, what does this have to do was stirring up my heart's devotion for God. Absolutely everything. This is the one point I want to make this morning. It's only one bullet point. And it's this. Our devotion to God comes from understanding his devotion to us. That's how we get out of the desert. We consider God's goodness, his commitment, his faithfulness to us And we let it sink in and impact our lives. All along the way, all through the desert, God has been showing his loyalty, his devotion to his people. He took them out of Egypt. He provided food and water for them. He made a covenant with them so that they could represent him to the world. But most of the people just didn't get it. And so as the Israelites finish up their time in the desert, God had to remind them once again, over and over again, by lifting the veil and showing them what's going on in the enemy camp here, and by telling them over and over again, through the mouth of a pagan sorcerer, no less, that God is for them and will fulfill his plans for them. God spoke to Balaam through a stupid donkey because he wanted to show Balaam you should have known better. And God spoke to his people through a second donkey, this prophet, so-called prophet called Balaam, a witch doctor, to let his people know that they were blessed and they should have known better. God uses this pagan prophet to emphatically say to his people, can't you see that I am devoted to you? But will you be devoted to me? And my brothers and sisters, as we wrap up here, I just want to ask you, ask each of us in our hearts, do we understand God's devotion to us? And I don't mean just to like our individualistic agenda or personal dreams and our ambitions, but I mean his devotion to us that we would be shaped to be like his son Jesus and be used by him in this amazing plan of redemption of mankind. Bare minimum, that's what we all have if we put our trust in Christ. But beyond that, think of how God himself has shown himself faithful to you and your family personally. Uh, Think about where you were in life when you realized that you are a sinner and needed a savior. How did God show his faithfulness then? And what about provision? Many of you have walked with God a long time. It can get tedious at times, but think, look back. How has he provided for you, for your family, how has he answered prayer? And there's so much more. And we are in the new covenant. We're not in the old covenant. And we've got something way better than those Israelites had. Jesus died for us. He rose again from the dead and he gave the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we could know him and live for him. Let's consider these uh, two brief verses here. One's from Romans chapter 8. Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? This is Romans 8, 31, 32. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Philippians 1.6, this is Paul again. He says, he who began a good work in you, he'll carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And there's so many more verses we could pull out and think about here. But if we've been struggling with our own devotion to God and feeling like we're in the desert, we need to drink deep and really let it sink in that our God is for us. And he showed us definitively through the incarnation, God took on human flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose again from the dead. So that there should be no question in our mind. And because of that, we need to be for him. But what are we going to do? Now, this brings us back to Balaam as an example. He was someone who knew the will of God, but he resisted it and tried again and again to see if he could turn things to his own advantage. In fact, as we, we learn later in Numbers 31, we're not going to read there, but even though Balaam couldn't get God to turn away from his people, he had a plan to turn the people away from God, and he gave his evil advice to King Balak and his crew, and it worked. God or Balaam resisted God, the bitter end. But Balaam's bad example, it's contrasted with the example, the good example of another man in the next chapter, Phineas. Now, these are, we're near the end here, so just bear with me here, last few verses. Let's read very quickly in chapter 25, starting in verse 1 to hear about Phineas and the good example. 25.1, it says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. This is right happening at the same time as this whole uh, uh, Balaam thing. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the ball of Peor. So this was Balaam's grand plan to get the Israelites to turn away from God. He says, hey, load them up with sex and barbecue, and they'll worship another god. It worked. Verse 3, at the end of it, it says, "In the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who've yoked themselves to the ball of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping. At the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, saw, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man and into the woman's stomach. And the plague against the Israelites was stopped. Now, we don't have time to unpack this whole story here, but the basic idea is this. God's people were sinning and they ended up giving their loyalty to another God because of that. Phineas, who is under the direction of God through Moses, says, you know what? Enough's enough. God deserves better than this. And he drives a spirit through this Israelite man and Midianite woman who were just flagrantly thumbing their nose at God. And God honors Phineas for what he does. And in the 21st century here, Phineas's action seems pretty shocking to us. But don't be fooled, it was pretty shocking back then too. This was no light matter. What it does is it illustrates to us just how big of a deal it is to sin against God and to give our loyalties, our devotion to something less than God in light of all that he has done for us. God is so for us, so devoted to us that he gave his son for us. And he's committed to seeing his plans with us through to completion. But are we for him? Are we devoted to him? Are we going to follow the example of Balaam, who knew better and time and time and time again went against him with self-interest in mind? Or are we going to follow the example of Phineas, who made the painful decision to deal with sin and to put to death other loyalties in our hearts? that eclipses our loyalty to God. Let's pray. Lord, you are so, so good to us. I pray that you would just make that apparent to our hearts, Lord. I think, Lord, often we're like like a teenager plucking petals from a flower saying, does he love me? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But Lord, you have shown us you love us. Though we don't deserve it, You are so good to us. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, so that we could hear it, so that we could really drink it in. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd show us just even application in our own lives, Lord, each one of us. Where do you want us to show our devotion to you? Help it to be. Help us to be wholehearted for you. Thank you for your love for us, for your glory, Jesus. Amen.